Welcome back to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Report cards are out for K-12 public schools. This summer, tourists will be able to visit the Ozarks in Washington, D.C. And the University of Missouri and Stevens College teaming up for a new program geared towards women. That's all coming up on the program. Some time has passed following the shooting of a 16-year-old in Kansas City after he mistakenly went to the wrong house to pick up his siblings. Anthony Morbeth is with Republican Representative Lane Roberts, a former law enforcement official, to find out how Missouri's Castle Doctrine Law relates to this incident. We're talking, obviously, to the representative, but... I also want to talk to the Lane Roberts, who has a background and who has spent an extensive portion of your life in in law enforcement, because uh, obviously for those who know who you are, you, you have a background in law enforcement. And I'm curious, with the events that happened recently in Kansas City, the events being a 16 year old boy. Uh, mistakenly went to a, a different residence, uh, somehow uh, was shot twice in the head and somehow is still alive today. The the 84-year-old gentleman, uh, I believe, is currently in custody. Now, there's been a lot of interesting questions in relation to that. Mine was a little bit different. Mine is more of, I could have sworn Missouri has a castle doctrine law in Place. And I know that the 84-year-old who was accused of allegedly firing the gun faces charges right now. But do you think those charges will stick given Missouri's Castle Doctrine law? Well, I don't know that I'm willing to predict whether the charges will stick or not. Uh, I don't know all the facts of that case. Uh, there's a few things that come to mind, though. Um I spent uh, 43 years in police work and a couple more years uh, at the Department of Public Safety. So the some of the nuances of the Castle Doctrine, there are those, I think, think that any time somebody comes to your door, uh, you're, you're free to shoot. And, and there may even be a level of truth to that, but there's a proviso. The proviso is that there's a reason uh, that you can articulate that you felt threatened. Uh, I don't know if that was the case here or not. There's another thing to consider. We spoke about this in an earlier interview. When when the perception is that crime is out of control or you have a, a criminal element uh, that's, that's making people uncomfortable, maybe a particular neighborhood or enclave of, of a city uh, has a, a kind of localized uh, problem. But if the if the neighbors feel threatened, bearing in mind this this gentleman was 84 years old, now, there are those who would refer to me as elderly, but I'm in pretty good physical condition. But would I want to be uh, physically grappling with somebody that I felt was threatening my home? I don't know that I would care to do that, and I have no idea what kind of physical condition this gentleman was, but 84 is not young. And so if you're someone who is pretty senior uh, and you are feeling insecure in your home and there's uh, uh, some kind of reason to believe the worst, the potential for overreaction certainly occurs. I, I don't know that this was racially motivated. I don't know if this was uh, somebody who jumped to conclusions. Uh, I don't know if this is somebody who there was something about that circumstance that frightened them. Uh, but what I can tell you is if you're going to uh, resort to the Castle Doctrine as your defense, there is still the requirement that you, you you have to have some reason that you can articulate that you felt threatened. You can't just shoot everybody who walks onto your, your porch. And, and again, 
I, I've heard the things that people are saying about what he did and what the, the young man who was shot did. I wasn't there, so I don't know what those particulars are or whether or not there was some reason for this gentleman to feel uncomfortable. I just don't know. Um, it will depend on the facts as the court sees them, whether or not uh, the shooting was justified uh, by virtue of the Castle Doctrine. But there is, in fact, such a law, and it does give you the right to defend your home uh, if you feel threatened. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as, a law, as a former law enforcement official, as it relates to the Castle Doctrine law in general, does someone not have to, in some way, shape, or form, feel like they're being provoked? Uh, provoca provocation is maybe not an accurate term. Generally, it has to. There has to be a threat. Provocation. There, there are some older statutes. Some of them still exist, where an individual, by word or deed, could provoke you into an assault of some kind. But as the nature of the assault goes up, so does the need for the level of provocation. Uh, I, I, the language, as I understand it, has primarily to do with threat. Uh, or a perceived threat, uh, that you are actually defending your home. Uh, uh, we also have a stand-your-ground doctrine, but it's the same thing. You can defend your person, but you have no duty to retreat. You don't have to, if you meet somebody on the street and they threaten you, you're not required to run away as it used to be. Under that doctrine, if you really are threatened, um, you can defend yourself. The same applies to your home. Uh, but you're, if you're talking about defending something, usually you're talking about uh, there is something threatening you that you have to defend against. Provocation, on the other hand, uh, doesn't necessarily lend itself to the argument that you're defending anything. Uh, I'm not sure how the court would see the argument of provocation uh, as a better uh, explanation than uh, one of defending either yourself or your home. We're talking with Republican Representative Lane Roberts of Joplin, but uh, we're talking with Lane Roberts, the former law enforcement official, and we're talking about, or I guess trying to get just more of a better understanding of the whole situation uh, regarding the uh, situation that took place not too long ago with the 16-year-old in Kansas City being shot twice in the head and uh, the alleged charges against the 84-year-old uh, as, as at the time of this recording. From a Missouri Net point of view, it made our headlines because it's a local story, but it also made national headlines. And I'll, I'll word it this way. The governor had said earlier today that the president is trying to politicize this situation. And you can make an argument both for and against potentially that it is being. But my question is, depending on the outcome of this, do you potentially seeing this going to a higher court? Well, I think I think that potential always exists. If the defendant uh, were to be acquitted or the prosecutor chose not to charge, that's a little bit different. But should he be convicted, the potential for, then for the appeal goes way up. You could also have somebody, I suppose, uh, try to file uh, charges a little differently. Um, as an example, for those who are old enough to remember the Rodney King incident, where initially the officers were... Uh, not charged and then were subsequently recharged uh, under federal law for taking away the individual's constitutional rights, which were different than the original charges of, of assault. So I, it, potentially somebody could try, I suppose, to charge it differently if the prosecutor made that decision. 
but I think the issue at hand, and it happens every time, and this is no no surprise to anybody, any time the two parties involved are, are parties of different race, uh, the potential for somebody to politicize it or make it a racial, racial issue certainly exists. And again, I don't know enough about this to know whether or not uh, race played a role in the decision that was made uh, by the man who, who fired the gun. I just don't know. Uh, but I think that the opportunity to to politicize it, to try to underscore a point that maybe uh, either the president or some other politician uh, is advocating for, you know, it's it's almost too good an opportunity to pass up for some folks. That in itself is tragic in my mind, uh, but it, uh, that's just the nature of the environment we're currently living in. Do you think residents across the state, Americans in general, reading the story and the media as a whole, regardless of what outlet you follow and or read and or watch, do you think that there's a bit of an overreaction to the story in your mind? Well, I think that's the case way more often than I wish it was. Uh, you and I had spoken earlier, and I mentioned to you that, that in some regards, there are circumstances wherein people are not only willing to believe, but almost prefer to believe the worst. And it's, it's worse when it fits into a political argument uh, and somehow the facts kind of get lost, uh, and and the the issue becomes more of uh, a peripheral. Is it about guns? Is it about race? Uh, is it about a doctrine? Uh, as opposed to whether or not the conduct was reasonable, regardless of race, uh, regardless of doctrine. And in, again, in this case, I know so little about the all the facts. I have a great deal of faith in the Kansas, Kansas City Police Department. Uh, they, will, they will collect their facts, uh, and the prosecutor is going to have to make a decision, and then the judge will have to make a decision uh, what role uh, race or uh, castle doctrine plays in those decisions remains to be seen. Uh, but I'll just tell you, regardless of what people say, and this is my personal opinion and I'll stand by it, uh, generally speaking, police officers are going to do the right thing based on the law uh, that they're sworn to uphold, generally speaking, prosecutors are going to make uh, the right decision, uh, politics aside, and courts, I think, work very hard at being objective and doing the right thing. So I'm, I'm of the mind that uh, I'm going to let the system do what the system is supposed to do, uh, and, and I will try to avoid those political inferences and making decisions based on that. I'm, I'm interested in what the facts bear out. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. We all make choices about alcohol. Kids make choices whether to drink or not. Bye, Dad. Remember, I'm going to Alex's party tonight and sleeping over. Hey, Em, remind me about that party again. And adults make choices whether to talk about it. That's true of parents and every other trusted adult in a kid's life. Kids want to know our expectations, and they want honest answers in everyday conversations. So talk with your kids and help lead them on a positive path. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. I'll be here 
to hear what's on your mind. As an adult, kids want to know you're listening to them, but they also want to listen to you. When it comes to alcohol, they want to know your expectations and how and why to avoid underage drinking. Talking early and often about it in everyday conversations reinforces your message and keeps lines of communication open. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Over the past few years, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected how we live our daily lives. Today, one in five Americans experience emotional and mental health challenges, but many of us do not understand what we are facing or how to ask for help. At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, we work every day to eliminate stigma, combat mental illness and substance use disorders, and advance mental health. If you or someone you love needs help, you are not alone. Please visit mentallyhealthynation.org to learn more. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Welcome back to Show Me Today. This summer, tourists will be able to visit the Ozarks in Washington, D.C. The culture, food, and history of the region will be the subject of this year's Folklife Festival by the Smithsonian on display at the National Mall. A regular guest on our show, Caitlin McConnell, editor of Ozarks Alive website, gives Ashley Bird the details. Things are amping up quickly for this year's Smithsonian Folklife Festival. It'll be held at the end of June and early July of this year in Washington, D.C., and it's been really exciting uh, over the last, you know, really two years or so to be observing and part of the planning process for this, since it's going to be focused on the Ozarks this year, which is the first time um, that the region itself has been one of these focuses. Um, and, you know, it's going to be, I think, a really good opportunity both for people here locally to kind of get energized and, uh, you know, excited and together about the culture and different things that they represent from that, but also on the national stage, being able to bring that to a wider audience in D.C. will be really cool. So people who go to D.C., if they're not familiar with this, this Folk Life project, how is the Ozarks going to be presented? This year in particular, they have two different themes that run the course of the festival. There are the Ozarks and then there's Living Religions. And so both of these programs will exist in different parts of the National Mall, you know, the area between the Washington Monument and the Capitol Building in D.C. And will each have their own space. And so you'll kind of go through, you know, it technically is called a festival. It's not so much a festival like we think of in the Ozarks for craft festivals and things like that. But it is in the, I guess, the sense that you have individuals who are demonstrating things. So you might have some musicians or you might have a blacksmith or you might have, 
um, quilters, different things like that, where you can go around and learn more about the tradition, ask questions, things like that. And with Ozarks Alive, your your website and uh, your gathering and archives with Ozarks Alive, how would people walk away who don't know about the Ozarks? What what would they think? What are they carrying with them? You know, I think the answer today might be different than I would have said five or 10 years ago. Um, it really feels like in the last few years, the Ozarks, whether it's good or bad or accurate or not, has gotten more of a buzz on the national stage. You've had TV shows like Ozark, other things in the media that have kind of painted a particular image of what the Ozarks is. And I think that I would hope, given that a lot of people have some context, for at least that word in their mind anyway, of what that means, I would hope that they would come away from the festival realizing there's more to the region than they understood before. And, you know, whether it is the traditions or it is the depth of generational things being passed down from one, you know, your mother to your grandmother to your daughter, those sorts of ties for different things. Um, and that maybe their impression of it a certain way wasn't entirely accurate. Maybe that would lead them to learn more after they leave the festival to broaden their understanding even more. What have you found so far and what, what have you guys put together? You're part of the team who are putting together all of this for the Smithsonian, correct? That's right. Yeah, I've been really fortunate to be kind of on the this the team and this kind of the sidelines part of the group uh, talking this through the last couple of years. And, you know, it's been really interesting to, to learn more myself. I mean, this is I've discovered people and things that I didn't know about before, which has been fantastic. But also kind of having this um, hive mind of like talking through what it means to be in the Ozarks and what should be representative of the region on a national scale has been really cool, too, because, you know, the Ozarks is even more than just southwest Missouri and northwest Arkansas, right? It's technically five states. And so, you you know, the geographical definition, you have Illinois, Oklahoma, Kansas, and then, of course, northwest Arkansas, southwest Missouri. And, and the way that the festival, it, you know, it's based on culture. So it definitely, vast majority of what we're going to talk about has to do with Southwest Missouri, Northwest Arkansas, but it does get into Oklahoma some too. And so getting to talk through all those questions, like what, what is the best approach? Um, how are we going to, to talk about that? Um, I think that that's, I know it's made me think it. I think it's made everybody think too, who's been part of the team. We're talking with Caitlin McConnell here on Show Me Today uh, of Ozarks Alive. So to get that flavor, you can go to Ozarks Alive uh, on on just Google it. You know, an interesting thing about who ultimately was chosen is that they represent niche things, but they also, in some other senses, are try, try to be generalist. You know, you try to be able to show... Um, as much as you can with certain people, because there is a very limited number of people who are ultimately going. I, I don't know uh, what the final count was, but it's, you know, less than 100, um, somewhere in that figure. So you think about representing multiple traditions over an entire region, you know, that unfortunately, it's not nearly as many people as we would like to have seen end up going. As I do with Ozarks Alive stories, you know, every person represents a different story. And it's been really cool to see some of the ones come together for this particular program, you know, you have things like the Brockwell Gospel Music School down in Arkansas that is a shape note singing school that's been going every summer since I think 1947. So it's a long standing tradition in Northwest Arkansas that they're going to be sending some people to do some demonstrations and sing um, for some programs. You have groups like the Creek Rocks, which is a big favorite here in Southwest Missouri, Northwest Arkansas. Mark Ballou, who's from a longtime music family here in Springfield, and his wife, Cindy Wolf 
they're going to be playing and are involved in, you know, music with a lot of other people too. So there may be some impromptu um, groups break out too. Who knows when it goes into other categories, you know, we, we talk, like I said, there's music, there's crafts. So some of those things like the blacksmith and the quilting and things like that, you also have foodways. And, and for us in particular, you know, there are some foodways that are devoted to cooking and, and different um, meal preparation and things like that. But there's also the concept of foraging and gathering and growing different plants, which is obviously a huge thing here in the Ozarks. And so that's going to be really exciting to have, you know, a, a variety of people um, there as part of the program who can help educate and kind of speak to what it means to forage, what it means to grow different things and kind of help spread that awareness, too. Are you going to bring any pawpaws? <laughs> You know, I have not heard anything about that. Um, probably not, just because I know with pawpaws, it's like they're ripe for five minutes, basically, and then they go bad. So it would be a difficult thing. I guess morel mushrooms, that would be a fun one okay. too, right? That's true. That would be another thing to talk about. Oh, wow. This sounds like fun. So is the Smithsonian paying for all these folks to go up there? The funding comes together from a variety of sources. You know, the key partner in this um effort is Missouri State University Libraries, which is kind of how I got involved in the program through them. But you also have a number of other key partners, both in Arkansas and Missouri, who are providing funding to be able to offset the expenses associated with this. So it's not like the participants are paying their way. They are funded to go and were chosen because of their background and skill sets. And that's what qualified them to be part of the festival. You know, with your Ozarks Alive on online, I mean, people could just watch that and read that, right? Have a slideshow of it as you know, <laughs> could have your own kiosk, couldn't you? <laughs> well, I, I'm really fortunate. You know, I've been able to help with some of the information and some photography. So hopefully, you know, people do get a an, an extension of what they're seeing on the mall. I'm certainly not the only person who's shared information and photos, but it's been really cool to be just one little piece of that effort. It's definitely going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be an experience that we all kind of look back at as, you know, a, a pivotal moment, you know, whether it is sharing information on a national stage or just creating more excitement here at home. And that's something I'm definitely in favor of, you know, helping people realize the value in appreciating and preserving Ozarks culture, which is ultimately what I really hope happens out of this. We always look forward to these regular visits with you, Caitlin McConnell, and the work with Ozarks Alive. We'll talk to you again on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. 
And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact, like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana and vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No. But you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes. But if you're ever concerned about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This is Show Me Today. Report cards are out for K-12 public schools. Elisa Nelson talks to State Education Commissioner Margie Van Dieven about the report. Yeah, so I think what we see in, the, in this uh, release of the annual performance report is that our, our school districts and charter schools continue to work very hard uh, on behalf of our students. Students are... Um, working in many, many areas. I think there were a few pieces that, that stuck out to us most significantly, and that is uh, that we did see variations of performance in, in certain areas of the state. We did certainly see uh, an uptick in some of the chronic absenteeism that we have talked about uh, post-pandemic. We know in our, in our uh, look at the actual 
test assessment data, we're still not where we were pre-pandemic, so we're still making up some, some um, ground there. However, uh, recognizing that, um, as you noticed, this, noted, this is 2021-2022 data, uh, I feel like we've made some pretty good strides in this school year, and we'll be seeing that uh, very shortly. Those tests will be administered in uh, the next couple of months here. Okay, uh, so more to come. Virtual education, does this show you um, how the pandemic and kids being um, in, in some schools only being able to access education virtually? Can you talk about that? We did see that uh, overall schools who remained open fared somewhat better in the data, the data points themselves. You can see that, um, that students do need to be in school for the most part. And um, when I say that, I do think there have been some virtual programs that have been helpful when people are trained and ready to go and move into those programs and the students are equipped. What we saw in the pandemic was a lot of people who hadn't been necessarily trained to teach in that way. And then um, we still struggled with that digital divide. So pleased to see the state of Missouri investing fully in broadband expansion and making sure that every family has access uh, to the materials that they need in order to access uh, remote learning, um, healthcare, all sorts of um, benefits, of course. Uh, so yes, we did see that uh, for the most part, students performed better when they were in person with a teacher in front of them. I talked to the teacher of the year recently, uh, Christina Andrade Melli, and she talked about when, like this is the first year that students are coming back to a, a full school year, and she talked about how, you know, after the pandemic and they were back in seat, how they didn't have the endurance like they do more so now. So I thought that was interesting, and, and we'll get into absenteeism here in a, in a little bit, but. Yeah, I might add on that. I was visiting a, a uh, elementary school last week, and I, I thought it was really interesting to hear directly from uh, the principal there who shared that, that the level of stimulation is still very noticeable. So, for example, some of these youngest, youngest children, it wasn't the school doors may have been open, but they still weren't exposed to crowded restaurants, crowded churches crowded grocery stores. Uh, so a lot of this uh, s stimulation that they see in a busy, busy school environment is still much for them to take in and they're adapting. It's, it was just an interesting insight. Okay, so social stimulation mm -hmm. then. Right. Okay, got it. Tell me what the report cards don't show. Oh, I, you know, there's many, many things that the report cards don't show and that is something I think we need to pay very close attention to as, as communities when we make judgments about schools. It just can't, right? Uh, what we do at the state level is try to measure, we always say you monitor and measure what matters most. And right now from our seat, we talk a lot about academic performance, access to opportunity, making sure our students are graduating, making sure they're attending, those kinds of things. But the the report card's very challenging to show the tenacity of our students, the hard work of our teachers that they do on a day-to-day -day basis, those relationship pieces that you talked about, um, what kind of other things we'd like to, we'll talk about probably in a bit in the continuous improvement part, but uh, what is the staffing situation looking like in those in those schools right now? Uh, there's, you know, as we just mentioned, there's just so much um, importance placed and the value placed on that that teacher in the classroom and the relationship piece is so significant and the report cards just can't pick that up. 
All right. Report cards are out for Missouri's public schools on their uh, performance. It's the annual performance report uh, for the 2021-22 school year. We might refer to it as APR. Uh, State Education Commissioner Margie Van Dieven joins Show Me Today to talk about what's next and just to kind of give an overall view of what the report says. So you have a brand new spanking system um, or new version of a system that you're using to measure academic performance, MSIP 6 as we might refer to it in this interview. Um, Tell our Show Me Today audience about the system and what it takes into account. Sure, so I want to start by just saying MSIP actually stands for the Missouri School Improvement Program. So it's all about helping us be better. We all say, you know, I've always followed the Jim Collins uh, good is the enemy of great. Uh, you know, we all want to think we're good enough, but let's let's really hone in on those data points and say, where can we improve? And every single one of us has a place to do that. And so those report cards help direct us and, and uh, guide us in some of those decision points. So the report card itself includes uh, the MAP test, which stands for the Missouri Assessment Program. And those uh, tests are comprised of four areas, English language arts, math, science, and social studies. You will see in this report card uh, an element that has been strengthened immensely, and that is the uh, growth component for English language arts and for math. Uh, And we're able to do an individual student growth value-added metric, and those scores have been equally rated with the status, the overall performance. Okay, I want to move to the next uh, part, which is what's next. What's next um, to help get schools to the level they need to be to ensure that once it's time to decide, are they accredited, are they accredited with distinction, are they provisionally accredited, are are they unaccredited? Once you get to that level, like what needs to be in place so that um, you can help them to make sure that they're fully accredited? Right. What does that look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question because you know, the analogy that I, I often use is data can be a hammer or a flashlight, right? And so we're really trying to help with MSIP for it to become more of a, a flashlight. Um, it definitely has that uh, accountability always feels like it's a, it's a judgment call. Of course it does. So those accountability is what it is. Like we all have to be accountable and our school districts certainly welcome and feel the need to show their public accountability. They're serving our children with public tax dollars, and so we definitely have an important uh, responsibility, and those accountability reports can help that. But overall, what the I want to emphasize that the Missouri School Improvement Program is just that. It really is to help us hone in on where are those levels of improvement and what do we need to do to make sure that we are fully accredited. So to go back to some of these, these very quick questions of what's included in it, the English language arts, the math, the science, and social studies. All of those assessments are designed and based upon the Missouri learning standards that were developed by Missourians, approved by the State Board of Education. They show grade level expectations, so what every kindergartner should know and be able to do, what every seventh grader should know and be able to do is outlined in each of those grade level expectations. Uh, we did narrow those for our districts, calling them, uh, went through a process uh, during the pandemic to say, let's really prioritize and identify what are those key areas. I say all of that because one of the first things 
for the what's next is for districts to take very good look at uh, the alignment of their curriculum instruction and assessment and making sure that those are informing what's happening in the classroom and making sure um, that they are aligned because there's a, a technical term, but I, I think it makes sense when you talk about depth of knowledge. If you're teaching one way at one level of expectation, but the third grade level standards are expecting it to be taught at a much higher level, there's a disconnect there. And that's why you might be seeing some of the disconnect in the test score. So that's a big place that they'll start in those continuous improvement plans. Other areas that they might address is, well, um, we know that we've had uh, teachers teaching at a content area for an X period of time or we've had a heavy reliance upon substitute teachers so what do we need to do as a community to make sure we're elevating the teaching profession and making sure we have great teachers in the classroom maybe we put all of our energy there they might also decide that we want to expand our options for um, career opportunities for students. So let's explore various career center options for our children or make sure that they have access to advanced placement courses and making sure that they can find whatever it is that each of those students needs. Maybe that would be the area. Or maybe it will be as simple as I was saying earlier, just really focusing in on making sure our kids are in school. And then digging into that, maybe it might find out that it's you know, we need to really elevate the importance that our kids feel safe every single day in our schools. So they might decide in that plan that we're going to focus solely on school safety. All right, State Education Commissioner Margie Van Dieven. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I see you finally got a new helmet. I did. Bought it cheap online. <laughs> Follow me. We'll turn off here. I'm right behind you. Watch the cars. They can be crazy. young man hit by a car? Yes, and his helmet is smashed. It's a brand new helmet. It's probably a fake. Fakes cause real harm. You're smart, buy smart. Brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. I've been driving trucks for a long time. Safety is my number one priority. I know that my truck has huge blind spots. That's why I remember to check my mirrors often for smaller vehicles. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're behind the wheel, try to avoid lingering in those blind spots. It can be dangerous. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. The first three years of every child's life are critical. Learn more about early intervention. How your baby or toddler plays, learns, talks, acts, and moves give important clues as to how they are developing. If you have any questions or concerns about whether your baby or toddler's development is on track, please call 1-800-515-BABY. That's 1-800-515-2229. Call 1-800-515-BABY. That's 1-800-515-2229. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? 
Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We return to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. The University of Missouri and Stevens College of Columbia have teamed up for a new research program that will feature women in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. It's set to start next fall. Cameron Connor talks with associate professors Brandon Moore and Michael Barger of Stevens about the program's goals. Around the state, maybe they don't necessarily know what the entire field pertains to. So can you talk about just the importance of STEM, just to start this off, so that people around can really wrap their head around what STEM is and why it's so important. Brandon, can you get us started off? So many technical fields, they're foundations for people in health professions and engineering and mathematics, you know, writ large. So the more we foster uh, a crop of students who have these fundamental skills and have the have this fundamental knowledge, the better we're going to have a um, a rising crop of of professionals who are equipped for these highly technical fields. This is for a plethora of fields that this is going to assist in. However, it seems like the main focus around it is equine veterinary, basically jobs in general. Whether it's equine veterinarians, why is the focus so so centered on that? Um, we do a lot of great things at Stevens College, and one thing we have access to is our stables and our equine program. Uh, we're just going to be teaching some pretty complex biology. We also want to teach students how to do research, how to design a study, how to execute a study, how to analyze results. And we looked around the campus and we said, well, we've got a laboratory here. You know, you go to other facilities and they'll have mice or they'll have some other experimental animal. And I'm like, well, we've got a, a stable here with horses. Um, and then additionally, we have collaborators at the equine school who are really interested in horse nutrition and those things that they can do that will better the uh, horse's uh, digestion, decrease colic. Uh, those components, and it seemed like a perfect matching together that we want to foster a crop of young female scientists here. We can use the the organisms, the horses there as our our subjects. and then but we are collaborating with those people at the vet school who are going to ask these really uh, focused questions on if we increase this percentage in their feed, how does it increase their ability to digest or decrease gastrointestinal problems? So there's a bunch of things that are kind of overlapping that have a real synergy to them. Not only talking about the collaboration, but mainly talking about the overarching, what is this program about? How is it supposed to work? What are its goals? Michael, why don't we start this one off with you? With the uh the University of Missouri, they bring in a lot of uh, expertise that we don't have at Stevens College. So we're a small college, they're a big university. They have capacities in the, the realm of research that uh, are not 
supported at a, at a small institution like this. And so uh, the collaboration really brings together what Stevens can offer, which is a, a group of young women who are dedicated to uh, advancing in STEM disciplines with the sort of uh, largesse that the university brings in terms of uh, access to avenues for research and for uh, collaborating with uh, really top-notch scientists uh, doing cutting-edge kind of things. And so having them on board and being a part and parcel of this uh, is I think uh, critical to its future success. And uh, we certainly hope to build uh, more interactions like this. Go ahead, Brent. So I think that that goes to the question, why Stevens? And it's because of the environment, the supportive environment we have here. This will be a cohort program where we're, hope, we're, we're planning on bringing in a group of women who will collaborate with each other, are going to be um, a research team and learning how to be scientists. And over and above that, they're going to be supportive of each other. We are a supportive environment in terms of fostering women learning scientists. But even within the group itself, it's going to be a cohesive group that is going to be self-supportive and self-sustaining. So there's two things here. One, we're really aiming towards an excellent science education, but doing it in the context of the, not the specialness of Stevens College and the environment that we can provide and this environment that's been chosen by women for 150 years to come and um, and be educated. One thing that I'd love to point out, Brandon, that you mentioned in actually the article itself that was released from Stevens College and from the University of Missouri when the news release came out was the fact that, and this is just from what my understanding or interpretation was from it, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but even though there is, I guess, let's say an overarching umbrella that kind of surrounds the equine field. This isn't necessarily just structured towards that. If if you want, if one of these young students wants to go into, let's say, the medical field or some sort of biotech field, this also gives them the education and the skill requirements in order to go into those, correct? Yeah, so you there'll be a focus on horse physiology, but if you're going to a medical field, it's all biology. You're understanding organismal systems. Uh, you're understanding endocrinology. You're understanding gastrointestinal function. So these are all fundamental components, but also we're going to have, if you have interest in nutrition, this is an avenue towards that direction. If you have an interest in pharmaceutics, there's, there's an interest, you know, we can go in that direction. So while we are going to be very focused on using the stables, the lessons and the skill sets you gain from this are widely applicable. And I can't see a medical school that wouldn't say, wow, that is somebody who has had amazing foundation, amazing preparation to be a health provider because they have been working in a similar field. Or if someone wants to go to, phar to pharmaceutics, here's somebody who understands experimentally uh, working with animals, uh, analyzing results. So it is larger than it's than 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 that component for the next follow-up question I, I have for that is for the equine field itself and that's where the kind of the relationship with the university of missouri comes in there's also a 10-week internship program that will be offered will it be for all the students or will it be for the ones that want to participate in it How, what does that part portion of the program look like yeah, so I think you're referring to the, the VRSP, and that's a, a, a year-long program that the vet school offers, uh, and Stevens has been uh, primarily through Dr. Moore uh, 
participating in that in the recent past as well. And so these students uh, at Stevens would learn foundational skills during their, their first two years here. And then as they rise into their junior and senior years, they would participate in that uh, veterinary research program uh, alongside University of Missouri vet students themselves. And so we see that as a, a really potentially powerful connection for uh, ensuring our students have access to uh, those uh, fields in the future, those opportunities to matriculate into uh, graduate programs and research programs in, in animal science and vet science uh, more specifically. Yeah. Great. And for, for listeners out there, when is this program supposed to officially be getting started? So we're looking at fall 24 now. So this year coming up, we'll be recruiting and putting curriculum together. There's a lot of uh, 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 changes coming at Stevens. We're reformulating curricula, and we do a lot of really great things here. We have the PA school, we have the nursing program, we have the equine program. What this is really doing is going to revitalize those core science students, those students who have a core biology interest or biochemistry. So for the next year, we're going to be working to assemble this. We're going to be uh, recruiting, looking for those students who can fill this role and, and frankly step up to this challenge because it will be a challenging program and hopefully bringing in our first cohort in fall 24. Well, I, I mean, I would uh, I would add this. Everybody involved in this is very excited about it and thinks that this is going to be something that in five years is uh, a, a wonderful program that has now a growing history of success behind it. And so we're really um, uh, interested and dedicated and excited to get that first cohort of students in who are going to help to make this program uh, so successful in the future. And uh, everybody that I've talked to who's engaged in this is focused on those students and their future, as well as the broader impacts that this kind of effort brings to the community, to the equine uh, industry, to the vet program, to Stevens College. Uh, the students are the real product in the end. Uh, and that's where everybody is uh, focused at this point. And, and I think that's that's rare. And so I'm really excited about that aspect of it. Well, to both of you, thank you so much for joining me on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Show me today.